Okay, welcome back everyone to the House Hack podcast. Today we're super excited to be joined by Kate Strong. So Kate is an executive leadership coach and consultant who enables individuals to deliver action with purpose. She's a plant-based adventurer, host of the Strong Voice podcast, and the 2014 age group world champion in triathlon. With a diverse background from elite sport to aerospace engineering, she knows what it takes to create positive change in organizations. Kate, fantastic to have you on today. Hi. Yeah, thanks so much uh, for having me here. It's a great pleasure. Amazing. So just super excited, really, to talk to you from everything from the diversity and inclusion that we're going to talk about, the kind of motivation side of everything that you do, a lot of world records in there, talking about your attempts coming up too. But really, the first question I want to ask is, what does it mean to be an executive leadership coach? What does that mean? Gosh, it's a really great question. And we could go for the full hour pretty much on this topic alone. I think it's really important as an executive leadership coach is to offer that support for people at the top of the the chain potentially. The more we aspire to grow within the organization and within our own companies, sometimes we're supporting bigger and bigger teams, but there's fewer and fewer people ahead of us or next to us to offer us that support. And what I've seen more and more is people in that leadership role feel they have to hide their emotions, hide their insecurities for the greater good of the team or the organization, yet that can leave them quite disconnected and ultimately not as an effective leader. So for me, it's to unlock whatever's within them so they can be their greatest self, however cliche that sounds, Mm. in supporting others, but being themselves as well. Yeah, I love that. And I guess, is is that the focus of of your style then trying to really draw out that human side of the leadership yep completely a lot of what my work does is about expressing vulnerability as a strength rather than seeing it as something we need to hide saying i don't know or today is not a great day for me isn't something that we have to mask anymore and we're seeing it more and more and that's also why diversity and inclusion is so important because that's also thanks to a broader spectrum of personalities at these leadership roles but yeah, it's something that I personally have learned that, you know, being strong can be vulnerable as well. Mm, kind of both both sides of it. And, and we'll definitely come to your, your personal experience there. But how do you find that in your sessions or when you're in that early stage of relationship with organizations or, or individuals? Is it something that there's a lot of pushback on, on that kind of vulnerability of that anticipation, maybe that it is seen as a weakness? Is, is that the kind of word on the ground as it were within organizations i think anyone who engages with me is aware that this is a a strength that they want to embrace they just Mm. maybe don't know how to or are missing that missing seeing what's already in them i'm very clear and i don't give anyone any extra tools i'm here to make sure you see it within you that's something I, i i strongly recommend and endorse very rarely do i work with anyone who is resistant to coaching full stop so they are open to ideas, yet we're talking about a dogmed pattern of 40, 50 years plus, and also still have those role models who don't express emotions, who still stand up to that role model of, you know, push through is a good sign of a good leader. So we are surrounded by these biases, if you want, internally and externally, that I do unravel and unpick, but the first step is always in the art of language. What we say is nine times how we perceive the world. So if I can change your language patterns or make you at least aware of them, that is the first step into into breaking through. And it can be as quick as a minute or it can take 10 years. It's up to the individual entirely. Nice, I think that's really powerful actually. Like bringing that self-awareness to what you do is really, really key. With this kind of impact you're having on people, even even daily now through your work, was this something you always intended to do? Because I know with a, a degree background in engineering, it seems like an interesting transition. Like, how was that journey to becoming a coach? Was it something you always had in mind, or was it a skill you sort of developed throughout your journey? Oh gosh, that's a really good question. And in honesty, I don't think I ever had a, a map or a plan. I've seen so naturally fall into situations and positions. I've got a double master's in engineering, so I've actually got three degrees behind, and Albeit I like the maths, I like the structure and systems of engineering, which is maybe why I did well in it. I much preferred, and and picking the personalities of each professor, why some professors preferred data-driven content, others preferred emotionally-driven content. So I managed to get through my degrees by focusing on the individual behind each of my courses and classes. 
So maybe the sign was always there that I'd be working with people in tech sectors rather than in tech myself. But no, I never thought I'd be a coach. I thought I'd be a zoologist living in a tree counting elephants in the Amazon or something. Not that elephants are in the Amazon, but yeah, I thought I was doing something quite crazy before. Awesome. So it's almost like you learn the systems, you learn the technical parts around what forms a job, a business, and then learn that people are really core to it. So how can they perform even better to create and utilize systems even better as well? I think within your background as well, there's some really interesting parts of like entrepreneurism coming into it as well, uh, alongside this coaching, this engineering background. Like how did that play a part? Did that just a sparking night in you? You wanted to have your own business and do your own thing? Or was it a, again, something that was always within inside you as well? I think I think in me there was always an element of curiosity or finding I, I was never satisfied with a no or not fitting a status quo if I wanted to do something I'd always find a way to solve that or get it done and I think that is the entrepreneurial spark in us all and I recall I don't really share this story much but when I was eight I wasn't allowed PSDs until I was a teenager and so I asked my mother if she could buy me some magnets to wear on my ear because I thought maybe magnetic earrings I could like pretend I had studs when I went to school. And my mum immediately said, no, it doesn't work. Magnets aren't strong enough. And I believed her. But then, you know, six years later, the, the whole fad is now uh, magnetic mm. earrings that people are wearing in their noses as well. And that was the moment I realised that I have to start listening to myself. And failure isn't a failure. It's not trying is the failure. So I think that greatest lesson looking back when I was eight was, yes, I'm an entrepreneur. It's just trial and error, but we shouldn't worry if it gets it wrong at least we have our answer and we can move forward yeah that's a really powerful message and I think at, at the core of it is really failure and motivation as you say those two kind of things and trying to see failure as lessons and what really drives you then kind of that motivation of, of what is your motivation to keep yourself pushing forward both professionally and personally as well yeah I think what I'm about to share might spark a accord with you two as well because you're you're breaking the norm as well coming out of university and setting up this business what drives me personally is I want I want to enjoy my life I don't believe enjoyment is when I have x amount in the bank or when I have that certain title in work then I can be happy I do my best to find joy in every single today and for me that means to create my own business to create my own reasons and respond be responsible for my joy so for me, being an entrepreneur, it has to be because then I am responsible entirely of going to bed, feeling that satisfaction. And, you know, I did my best today, which I wasn't getting in a job. And I suppose what keeps me motivated, because as you, you rightly said earlier, is it's not just in sport, in business that I'm pushing myself. I'm also got a few world records coming up in sport. I don't know what my potential is. I don't believe anyone can look at somebody and say, you're just an ex or you aren't capable of that but we will never know our own capabilities if we don't strive for the greatest, for the number one. So that's what I'm doing is I always wanna find when is my failure point, when is my breaking point, just so that I can keep myself true and be the best version, again, another cliche, but they do work, but be my best version. So I can make sure that today, Kate Strong is doing her best and this is my limit because my body told me so, or my brain told me so, not because of some external point of view from someone else. Yeah, I think that's really powerful and something personally I relate with quite a lot as well of like having this glass ceilings and just smashing through them and just seeing mm -hmm. that you're way more than what the words you describe yourself are and really just almost picturing yourself in a new way, a new light before you become the thing you want to be as well. I probably that brings up a really good point in terms of you have a world record that you're planning to do a 24 hours on a static bike later this year very very exciting i know you've uh, had an attempt previously on a similar challenge but not quite this one and i'm just sort of wondering what's your, your motivation behind this does it blend in that personal professional reaching new boundaries or is it also about a cause beyond yourself and your own glass ceilings to break through as well yeah and the answer is yes to all of that you're right i have attempted this record before uh 2017 or 16 i think i can't remember and i failed i didn't prepare accordingly and I, I did the 24 hours, but not the distance that Guinness requires for it to be a world record. So I walked away with humility. You know, it, it isn't as easy as saying it, imagining it. You've got to make sure that there's action behind. And I wasn't, there was a disconnect between my belief and my activities. Uh, and the reason I chose it is because 
a man has this equivalent world record, but no female. And I'm always curious as into why, why one area, not another is represented. So the, the world record, I suppose, is a platform for me to champion equal opportunity. Not that we are equal. I doubt I'll match the man's distance, but I want the right to have an opportunity to do the same or do what I want to do in my field. So I suppose that is a greater cause, but selfishly, it also holds me massively accountable to a, a high level of game. I'm training for a 24 hour cycle, like that includes seven, eight, nine hours a day on my bicycle some weeks. I need to step up my business in order to be as effective as possible. So the little things, the things that I'm procrastinating on are dissolving because I just don't have the energy to focus on, you know, little you know the emails that sometimes we reread four or five times before we respond i have to respond the first time saving me an hour because i don't have the time to waste anymore so my level of integrity stepped up meaning i hold my clients to accountable to a higher level too so i'm noticing everyone's elevating because there's no space for mediocrity anymore it's almost that personal accountability blends into your business accountability and the way you handle clients as well. That's definitely really interesting. I think picking up on that point from before where you discussed living for both the present and the future with these big goals in mind and always trying to push yourself to break through these glass ceilings. How do you find you have to balance that contentment of the present with sort of future contentment as well? Because obviously there's an element of enjoying the day to day. I definitely feel it and what I do for running, but like, there's also that race I want to do better in or that 24 hour challenge you want to do well in. Like there's different goals in the future to blend with the present day to day as well. Like how do you find the motivation where it comes from? Does it come from the day to day or does it come from the future? I think I think every day is a different requirement. But the one thing I'm really, really clear on is we cannot get attached to that end result. We can't get attached to that race. We can't get attached to that new PB because there are so many variable factors that can come into play. If you wanted a certain position, there's, there's millions of other people who are striving for the same position. And we don't know if our best will be the best on the day and the same for our personal best. So making sure we get attached to being our 100% in that 24 hour period, be it on race day or in our competition is really important. Because I think the demise or when I feel disconnected when I'm feeling not motivated it's because I'm making it mean something I'm I'm adding significance to my race like me not training as hard means that I'm not a good girl or I'm not a I'm not an effective coach suddenly I add all of these stories around it the present day is focusing purely on that activity in that minute almost so that we don't attach the weight of significance around it and it, it's easy to con conceptualize experiencing it is a different is a different ball entirely or a ball game entirely so it does come with practice but we just have to drop any type of meaning and be in that moment in the zone if you want to call it that nice with these kind of experiences say across elite sport across your professional life across coaching across leadership there's quite a lot of different backgrounds here if you could give away like one takeaway for leaders i believe everyone is a leader in their own right to do and to improve about their own lives and the way they manage themselves and manage other people what would you say would be the number one thing they could change today well i'm going to start before i say about the change we need to honor every part of our body and our, our aspects of our life so if we're excelling in business we have to honor our physical self we have to honor our mental and spiritual self too because otherwise we're going to create a very high pedestal and there's a disconnect and within that disconnect that's when we will start you know feast and famining motivation depression that's when we see the wobbles so we need to grow all of us as a collective as a collective whole so i've got a business coach i've got a sports coach and i've also worked with the shaman to make sure i'm growing in my entirety so the one lesson i give to leaders is make sure you honor in your tribe each of those aspects too. Somebody turning up to work might be going through quite a tricky position at home. Honour that part of them and know that today their 100% might be a little smaller. Give them the capacity to heal so tomorrow they come back even better. Yeah, it's really interesting to see that analogy or, or that kind of thought of, you know, seeing people as different 
versions of themselves all of the time. And I think there's probably a focus of businesses to see that actually there's only that oneself of, of the productivity side or, or the, the persona of the, the person doing the job, whatever that job is. Um, and maybe as a leader as well, there's the kind of, there's a certain perception or stereotype too around what a leader is or what a, a manager looks like and what role that plays in, in organizations. Do you find in, in your own clients that that comes through and it's almost a surprise that they need to or would benefit from revealing and honoring those other sides of themselves because they're maybe not used to it? Yeah, wholly and completely. It's usually, not always, when someone receives a pay rise or a new job position, that's when they realize they're unhappy. That's when I get engaged, when they've actually accumulated more material wealth and external success. That's when they realize that, that there's the disconnect. So I think I, I'm brought in again, I see myself as a mirror. So I'm here to hold the mirror up so they can see their spiritual aspect. They can hug or embrace their emotional side too to be that better and more wholesome leader because you know a, a wheel that's in balance moves a lot faster than one that's only half full so or half in shape so I, I add that balance and that centering to the individual so they can grow larger and take on more in the future mm. and I guess that really extends to teams as well isn't it especially if you've got that leader or that figurehead at the top of an organization or leading a certain team or department you shoulder a lot of that responsibility you shoulder a lot of that performance yourself and that can go both ways it can always be that in in the good quarters or the good years that brings everyone up with them but actually what you want is a department or a team that then isn't as affected by the downturns or the downtimes or the times where the leader might be having an off month and then actually the rest of the team goes with them so is it that sense of, of collective ambition of collective purpose and drive that brings everyone together or actually is it super important to have that leader as the catalyst that sort of really glues everything together because that's a lot of responsibility in leaders isn't it yeah and and there isn't a one-size-fits-all because each team mm. has different personalities within it as well um but I think the importance is the, the collective or the group needs to have a common goal and common values. And each individual needs to have their own bespoke values within that as well. Because we'll have just a, a very simple example of an extrovert who's very vocal and confident at sharing their ideas and an introvert for whatever reason is triggered by that. So they might withdraw. So they're not bringing their full self to the group either. Mm. So it's about managing personality so that everyone doesn't, doesn't deliver the same level, but they feel comfortable in their roles that their values are being satisfied. And that is the key. So the business and the team can work effectively to delivering the best, whatever they need to, to bring to market. Yeah. And I think that's a really good transition or, or thing to think through of, of our main topic conversation, thinking about diversity and inclusion, DNI, equity, equality in, in the workplace. And we're thinking about people bringing their whole selves or honoring themselves in, in the workplace, or at least in their lives, honoring those other parts of themselves. We've also spoken about organizations then allowing people to, to have that experience in the workplace that helps the wider team, that collective piece too. But stripping it all back, especially as an early careers individual or somebody at university a younger person a lot of the talk about diversity and inclusion is, is quite hard to untangle so starting at the beginning what does diversity and inclusion mean what does it mean to you I, I just want to caveat that I'm coming my perspective is from a white woman born in the west who has family that afforded me to go to university so mm. I am not speaking for the masses I'm speaking to a very elite few and I do acknowledge that that I'm actually be benefactory of a lot of these biases that create the need for diversity and inclusion policies in these conversations today so my perception of what diversity and inclusion is is equal opportunity I believe that it is the moral responsibility of organizations and individuals within companies 
to not just offer it to anybody who turns up, but to proactively go out to find out why are certain communities near me not even applying for this job? How can I engage with them so they could see themselves in this role in the future, so they know what skills they can upskill in to be able to be in a good position to apply? So I think it's more proactive than just passively sitting out there. So for me, diversity and inclusion has to be activism and it has to be standing for a change and making those changes rather than passively going, no, I'm not a racist. No, I'm not a fat feminist. I'm just going to sit here and see what happens. Mm. Yeah, no, really well said. And it's, it's a caveat that we often drive ourselves through. You know, we're trying to talk about HR and careers and the future of work and all these things. And through house hack and developing problem solving skills innovation skills running events that are trying certainly to be equal opportunity and first come first serve is, is is an interesting model that's currently part of that of actually who gets the opportunity to come to our events and um it's a caveat that we have too you know we're two straight white guys fine <laughs> cool we're young um at the same time but then there's also that equality of opportunity of okay what, what does that mean what's next because you can't you can't change that um, but what you can do is, is have that process, that built-in equality of opportunity as far, as far as possible. And I think the, the key word that I love from what you said of the moral responsibility of companies, because I think it's something that is a, you know, a systemic challenge that is not really seen at the top of organizations because it's the last consideration. You think you have, you know, you have profit motive, you have a ton of different obligations and choices that organizations have to make and actually the right one or the moral one or the thing that would benefit other people without the bottom line i don't think is prioritized because it doesn't have to be whereas certainly other decisions are so with that imperative that moral imperative that kind of right thing in mind really to what extent is it companies of the future what is it their responsibility to look after its employees in in this way and how can we maybe push in that direction even more? Yeah, I'd love to be able to quantify what diversity brings in that bottom line benefit, because I can, I've got this gut feeling that it is adding more value. When there's a most diverse spectrum of people on the board, in managerial and directorship positions, and in the workforce, we, we connect to a larger market anyway. And we bring more ideas to the table. We bring alternate ways of growing the business, pivoting out of problems, et cetera, that we don't currently see as diverse at the moment. So I think the business of the future will have, they'll be able to monetize, it's, it's sad to say it, but they will be able to monetize the benefit of having more women on the board, a higher representation of uh, BAME individuals, as well as non-binary or uh, non-heterosexual individuals. But that is what we need. I think the business of the future will just have a complete spectrum because they can see the bigger the spectrum, the more money they'll be making. Mm. It's like, yeah, give people the chance, give people a platform and they'll be happy. They'll produce, they'll continue to do, do a good job. And that shouldn't be something that because of any certain reason of part of someone's background or someone's choice that they're then actively disadvantaged against. But I think the, the key word is probably also that inclusion around going beyond diversity. I think there's a lot of um, quota and sort of nastiness around diversity, but actually if you think about the end goal of being inclusion and diversity happens anyway, and that kind of inclusive workplace is really something that fosters diversity by itself. So yeah. maybe when we think about that, how can our organizations be more inclusive to their employees currently, but also to people on the recruitment side who they haven't yet brought into the organization? I'm gonna say this isn't our conversation. Like we can't, we can't answer that question because we're actually part of the problem. Mm. We need to ask the question of how can we actually engage with the communities and ask them why they're not, why, you know, what do they see in us that they're actually repellent to, to be a part of our organization and solve those problems? You know, mm. something I've, I've been actively reading and upskilling myself in this area because I realized how limited a knowledge I am. But there's a sort of element of white saviorism that we could come in and think that we can solve the world, but mm. we can't. 
you know, we need to elevate from that. And again, comes back to what we said at the very beginning of this conversation, express some vulnerability. We have no idea how to solve the problem we created. We know out there that the answers there are obligation or what we need to do is find that person or that group of individuals who can help us find mm. the right question and the right answer. Yeah, no, it's a really, really good point. And I think the main thing that I see from that is that actually leaders struggle to understand what the right communication is or what the, what the right question that they should be asking or Maybe it is that pure vulnerability piece of just acknowledging that you don't have an answer or you don't have a way forward and you need one and you want to do better, but you don't actually know how. And that goes beyond throwing money at a problem. And it goes beyond ticking a box through a certain policy or through a certain recruitment mechanism that you've put in. It's like those things are, are fine and they have a place, but actually starting at that place of insecurity and saying, okay, what is wrong with my organization? I have a challenge as a result of my own upbringing, my own worldview, my own um, experience that has disadvantaged these other, others along the way, but I'm willing to make that change. I'm willing to hear and listen to the experiences of others. And that's the only way that we're going to unpack some of those challenges and organizational biases or things like that at the heart of decision-making because the decision maker has to acknowledge that change is needed and things are going to change because they are the ones with the, the power to make that. Yeah. And so surely what we're trying to get at is that it's not enough to recognize challenges or problems or biases or anything like that. There has to be something further. There has to be action. There has to be listening. There has to be something else there. And maybe it is that kind of leader-led activism. Is that maybe the direction we're taking this? If actually it's senior leadership, it's people with decision-making power that have to be the ones to, to kind of stride forwards first. Yeah, I think that's a really powerful sentence, leader-led activism. We need to lead by example. We need to give permission others to see what, what we're doing along the way of learning, but also what we can do. See, so yeah, I really, I really find that a very powerful way of thinking. Yeah, I definitely, definitely, definitely agree. I think it's um, led from the top and a really important way to trickle down through the organization throughout when it's led by people who are creating an inclusive and diverse environment. But just even though I agree with diversity having tangible benefits to the bottom line, and even though it's not quantifiable it being a benefit, I think everyone should strive to have a more inclusive work environment with that in mind is there some negatives to having a more diverse board more diverse team does it create does it make it more difficult for for teams to reach consensus because they have such broad views to bring together or does it in fact just add value and there's no negatives to it or should there be some things that leaders should be wary of or should look to try and mitigate against when they do create these more diverse teams i i don't i honestly don't see any negatives it does open up a wider spectrum of awareness of religious requirements, of dietary requirements, of different language and mannerisms, how it's portrayed from different cultures and communities. But that can only enrich our understanding of what it means to be human. It, it, I don't see it as any negative. And yes, you're right, there might be a more spectrum or more split options and ways to move forward. But that means we need to better understand each solution to a wholly deeper level, rather than before just taking one at surface value and running with it. So I think organizations will benefit from that deep challenge to make sure that out of all of the ideas, the, the select few that go forward will be better understood and more embraced by those challenges. I've heard of um, companies taking on, I can't remember the exact phraseology, but I think it's called red group or red team when they actively put teams in opposition who have very diverse and distinct ideas to make sure that they, they fight for the best one. And at the end, every, fine, one team will win, but the idea wins, the company wins because they know that has to be the right one because they put it up against the people who are so anti it. So I think that will definitely champion in, in adding a more diverse community as well. Yeah, that definitely makes sense, I think. It's just kind of recognizing potential challenges and being able to go in with a plan of how to mitigate against it if it does come up. I think what might be the common theme here or what might be 
something that strings us all together because if you have such diverse opinions such diverse thought maybe to bring it together there's a role of organizational culture within it do you think that plays a part in bringing out the best in people and enabling that discussion that red groups where they can actually hear other people speak because there's one thing having a diverse group but there's another thing actually listening to each other and do you think the culture of the organization needs to shift or is shifting towards that inclusivity both on the people in the room but the people who are being listened to in the room as well I, I do see more organizations doing that and I'm still seeing organizations who are very resistant to it or they hold a half-day seminar and tick as you said tick the box and it's done so I, I it has to come from within uh, and it and it does vary drastically but we again we we as organizational foundational leaders don't have to have those answers. There are charities, there are companies with, and individuals within the community that hold these types of webinars. You know, one company, Horea, which is local to Bristol, they actually go into businesses to educate people. What is racism? What is slavery? Because it's still happening to this day. So it's a way of working together as a community to engage the awareness so we can do within but we can also outsource it again we don't have to be the expert in everything yeah i think that's a really important point is that it's the vulnerability coming back into it again isn't it it's the realization of your limitations and your own biases and the stuff you don't know as well as the things you do know so it's bringing in help and asking for support especially around a topic like this where it might be expected upon you as a leader to know the answers or to have a direction that's that's morally ethically right and fits with everyone but actually like even though your intentions might be right, your actions might not match it. And so you might need support to build it around that. I think that's a really important part as well. On the other kind of side of the coin, if you're an employee in a workplace where you want to bring more inclusivity, more diversity to it, and to help your managers to do that, is there a way that they could have that conversation with the right people and create that change? Or is it again, relying on the external support and bringing that in to help them out as well? I think I think it can come from bottom up as well. It it might it might be harder per se because they have less clout and less sign off abilities in the organisation, but I think it's something they could. I know one lady I'm speaking with for my for my own podcast. She actually works with a HR organiser, so she's um, she's in STEM, and obviously she was one of the only women in this sector in her organisation. After three years of working with the HR to resolve that issue, it's now 50 50 percent women and men. But she, she, she took time out of her own day to actually help people source from different pools to bring more women into the organization. So it, it does take a bit of proactivity, but I think it's, it can be done top down or bottom up as well. I think maybe there's, there's a role of motivation here too, of embedded structural racism and challenges that actually, if it doesn't affect you and, you, and you've been sailing away and you know, you've had a 40, 50 year career, you you reach to your director, MD, whatever any title it is, it doesn't matter. You've got there and actually it's not really your problem to solve and you don't really care. And that is the, one of the biggest problems, but actually it's going to be one of the hardest things to change. And I think looking up in organisations, there's, there's two roles there to make that happen, to make that change happen. It is that leadership-led activism. It's okay the leader acknowledges that they have to change. They have to have these difficult conversations. Their organization is getting left behind and all of those things that we've spoken about and the moral obligation, of course, coming into that as well. But then actually in an ideal world, we wouldn't need to be having these types of conversations, right? So there's such a structural nature to these problems that that leader-led activism can only get us so far because it requires leaders to step up. And so maybe the alternative is just huge pressure from within organizations, huge, maybe even regulation type pressure, kind of there's got to be other ways because otherwise organizations would have already sort of done it. And because the effect on the bottom line should be there, like you say, it's kind of that common sense thing. So what's the other side? Is it just pure pressure from within organizations maybe? Again, there's no, there's no one solution. I think yeah. it completely depends on the organization action we have to start taking action and vocalizing our concerns or our opinion 
And as employees, we have the choice of who we work with and we have the choice to let them know why we don't want to work with them. So if it is misappropriation or misrepresentation of certain communities, we can let them know. And we are in the digital age. So social media and I'm, I'm very pro constructive feedback, not uh, just jumping on and trolling organizations, but we can let them know how to make it a transition easier and also let them know why we're not doing business with them anymore. But forget, you're putting to the side that we work for organizations every single day, we're voting for companies with our money. Every single day, we're, we're choosing to buy from one organization against another. As consumers, we need to make sure now that we're choosing organizations that are pro our values, choosing organizations that support fair pay for equality, you know, for employees, that they make sure that they have their own diverse network as well. So even if in our work, we're finding it quite sticky to do any change, we can still do a lot of silent activism on the outside. Google companies that are owned by ethnic communities in your local area and buy from them ra rather than the big white man owned brands that we're currently used to seeing. We can make change today. Yeah, it's, it's really strong. And that message of voting with your wallet is is such a massive one because ultimately if that's what it comes down to then that's what change needs to be made and consumer decision making might not seem like it has a massive impact but collectively it really really does because it it hits figures it hits the bottom line it hits cost it hits decision making everything within there as individuals it is that kind of collective might if you like or collective kind of movement that that really does have an impact but there is also potentially a flip side to that of the kind of we versus them type narrative perhaps that comes with a lot of our society i think the kind of polarization of of narrative of not actually having debate properly not actually having constructive conversations as you say rather than that kind of trolling mindset so when when we think about that when we think about voting with our pounds with our dollars with our money to help companies to instigate that change and put that pressure where it's needed. How do we not maybe create that we versus them, particularly at that leadership level that we know has so much strength? It could just be champ championing the positivities, explaining why we've chosen to buy from these organizations, why we're buying fair trades, because we wanna make sure that everyone has equal pay. We can naturally uh, educate our own networks by buying a different brand of chocolate, making sure it's not palm oil got inside it, or that we buy cotton brands that don't come from Uzbekistan because that is slave labor cotton created. So simple questions and just expressing that I buy cotton that is not sourced from this company country educates people. And we're also championing the positives of those companies as well. It's a step of what it's again, it's a step towards activism, but Activism isn't pointing fingers and shouting, it's actually championing the ones that are doing it good, or at least owning the path to doing it better. They don't have to be perfect from day one, but we want transparency. I think that is the key. And again, it comes to that vulnerability of putting our hand up and going, do you know what this area I really suck at? Can you help me? But this area I'm really good at. So can we just focus on that for the short term until we pull this one up a bit better? I really like that, actually. I think that removal of the pointing the finger attitude is really really strong because I think we see a lot of that nowadays of it's this person's fault when actually it's not necessarily even their fault they didn't even realize they're doing it so I think the point there of finding champions in what we do and pointing to them as or almost heroes in their own right as well I think is really really important I guess one of the questions I've got about this is do we more often than not speak to those who are already converted like the preached like preach the preached is that very much something that we do we live in our own echo chambers and we're often we might go and buy this fair trade chocolate and say to people look it's i bought it from here because of x reason but i'm only telling my friends and my family who already agree with me so is there a way we can get outside of our echo chambers and speak to those people that need to hear it more and have those constructive conversations really with them that makes a difference rather than just telling people that already will head nod and agree with us yeah, and you're bringing up a hugely valid point that sometimes outside of our control, because of AI, we're only shown feeds that we engage in. So actually, 
all the social media is channeling us into that very small niche that we we interact with. But just to bring, like if we were going to just use that fair trade chocolate as the example, what if we brought it into work? Or what if we know that the next Christmas party, we could find a caterer that only has zero net carbon footprints and offers and also donates it to a certain charity because they're affiliated together or is you know refugee women cook that food for example we can find ways of bringing it in without anyone really noticing and that I think would be the power because one you know you taste the food it's great and then by the way it's also does all of this good stuff so that's a way of potentially breaking the echo chamber is not championing what it stands for but just championing that it's tasty, healthy, nutritionous, uh, fair cost or whatever you want to champion and have the extra as a by the way. It's sad to say things like this because it sounds like we're strategizing and hiding where in fact my dream is the world would be hungry, have an elevated consciousness to want to do good, to want to live a thriving life and also make sure that other people are too. But sometimes we do have to sort of speak to whatever that is important to that person. And sometimes that might not be the fair trade aspect. Yeah, and that's really important. It's almost speaking in their language to help them understand as well. Mm. And probably underlying the point here is having difficult conversations. So speaking to your friends about something you're really passionate about and them also believing it isn't really a difficult conversation. You might think it is because society doesn't necessarily accept it. But if you both believe it, it's not difficult. So if you speak to someone who doesn't believe it, and have them realize by using their language and explaining it in their terms. It's almost like an entirely different conversation and actually has more meaningful impact as well. So I think underlying that more than anything is speaking to those who which you would not normally speak to and bringing that thought to the workplace, to a new group of people, to a whole new environment that wouldn't otherwise have seen it as well. So I think that's a really, really powerful move as well. But I guess it comes back to confidence a little bit and this might also bring in your experience of leadership coaching how if we want to do that as an end goal of having difficult conversations like how can we feel confident doing that because speaking to someone who is going to necessarily oppose us that can often trawl into just a shouting contest can't it of oh i'm right you're wrong i'm right i'm you're wrong like how can we empower ourselves to have those conversations and not fear them and not fear like especially if you're speaking to someone in a superiority of position that becomes even more difficult as well is there a way to keep something in our own mind that it's actually good beneficial that we can do this and it's more than okay to have those conversations with those that might not agree with us everyone's voice is worth something like it's a voice of one and that is valid whether you're a ceo or a janitor every single voice is still counted as one voice and ultimately what i like to say to myself and again this is it's quite personal depends on what empowers you there is no the truth. My perception of life is my truth. Your perception of what, what's happening right now is your truth. There is no one way fits all. We can replay this experience. And to me, it might have been quite intimidating to you. It would have been empowering, but it's the same experience. It's the same event. So whatever you portray is your truth and you're valid to it. If they disagree with it, they're disagreeing to it, not you. So it's not a slight on personality. And if we are approaching people, coming back to language skills, it's not you are doing this, you are that, you are a person of negative stature. We can bring it up as hypothetical, bring a, a what, I, what works well is, imagine if there was a boardroom just as today, sir, uh, and a woman walked in, how do you think she would feel being the only woman in this room? What can we ask her or do or say for her to feel more welcomed because she might not contribute because she is the only woman in this room or person of color uh, you know add your minority here so we can ask them to, to you know lean on their leadership and say can you help me solve a problem this is what I perceive in the future what can we offer as solutions so we might not never we might never get the credit but we might never even have to confront the problem because they think they've solved it already yeah, no, I think it's a really good, good way of going around things. I think that answer really speaks to your abilities as a coach to bring out that communication in other people. And I think a parallel that would be interesting to, to chat about is building the business case for HR and for ED&I versus potentially building the business case for bringing in 
an exec coach because I think that there's almost some parallels there too of you're trying to tangify some intangibles. You're trying to make clear the value of something that it makes very common sense to have and to use and to do and invest in. But then ultimately, sometimes it does come down to cost and it does come down to finance for organizations. And without the clear business case, without the clear report line to say, yeah, this is the benefit that we can 100% guarantee ourselves. Oh, yeah, maybe we won't do it then because it's not a certified win or whatever. So maybe there is part of that measurability of building a business case for HR in general, for diversity, inclusion initiatives. And I wonder if that's something that you found with being a coach too, of actually sometimes leaders might think they should use you, but don't necessarily want to from that kind of business case side. And you have to convince them of that or actually on a, on a leadership side, maybe it's just exec coaching is something that a lot of leaders know that they need. And once they have it, they don't really go back. Have you ever met an Olympian who didn't have a coach because they thought they were the best in the world in their sport? I've, I've never met any Olympians, to be fair. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah no, okay. it's the answer, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Every single top of the game, they mm. must probably have multiple coaches on different minute aspects of their you know, yeah, of performance abilities. It is hugely arrogant if we think we don't need a coach just because it's in our minds, not in the activities or the physical activities we're taking. We're missing so much. We always have blind spots. We always have areas we can excel and improve or nurture and grow and work through. So I believe everyone needs a coach or mentor of some capacity to hold the space for learning. Uh, but how that is in package, as you said, it could be in HR, it could be in, in executive coaching. That's up to the individual choice. But yeah, we all need somebody in our corner, definitely holding us to account as well to our greater self. So we don't just slip into our complacency and comfort zone. Yeah, no, really interesting parallel to, to explore. And I think then what we want to think about now as we summarize and close off our conversation in the next few minutes is really thinking about the future here. You know, thinking about a lot of big issues today, a lot of big questions. We've thought around some solutions and thought around that kind of path forward. And I think really that's the next stage of question for us is really what does the future look like for organizations that are not just paving the way because it's the thing that they need to do for their bottom line there is that moral imperative behind edni too so what does the future look like for equality diversity inclusion in the workplace doing its job properly what what can organizations do on that side of employees and employers what what can we actually do um i think Ask more questions, definitely. Mm. Get out into our community, into our group of clients as well, and ask them more questions in how we can serve more people and are we doing it effectively and opening up the same opportunities and reach for everyone and become allies. So this comes back to us not knowing the answers all the time. We, we don't have to save people. People are not injured or hurt. Everyone has the capacity to look after themselves. They just need that opportunity. So the question I want to ask, leave us with is basically, what can I do today to champion someone in their own life to make sure that they get the opportunities that I am and they may not necessarily have? I'm not here to give it to them. I'm not here to solve it. I'm here just to support them, find it themselves. Yeah, no, I love that. I think that's really powerful and shows really the heart of everything that we've been speaking about is, is trying to find the right vehicles. And, you know, questioning is definitely one of them, listening another to really get to the heart of challenges with other people's experience that we can't necessarily empathize with, but they can tell us about and we can put everything that we need in place to give them that equality of opportunity that hasn't been there in the past to make sure that it is there in the future. How do you think about that, Charlie? Are there any other vehicles, any other ways that we can offer that equality of opportunity with leaders? I really do like the, the champion approach. I think it requires empathy. I think this is one of the key words that we're going to see a lot of within the next five, 10 years is empathy-led leadership. But going deeper than that, it's listening to others and really hearing their situation, what they've been through in their background. And even though they might come from a certain 
background, certain ethnicity group or whatever label you apply to them, it's actually realizing they're more than that. They're more than the label. They have a cumulative experiences that are different, unique. Everyone is separate. So how can you not apply any bias to even just the majority groups or the minority groups and think of them as separate people and customizing your needs as an organization, but also customizing how you work with them as separate people. I think it's really powerful as well. So I think ideally I'd see this. I'm not sure this actually is the future, but ideally I'd see a future where every single person has a unique experience of work, should we say, that suits their style, suits who they are, and suits what works with them as well. So bringing in inclusion beyond just recognizing and asking questions, but also changing workplaces for people in separate places as well. I think we've probably seen a lot of that more recently in terms of the virtual working. That's very inclusive in that it brings more people into work who would not otherwise have been able to even do that. But going forward, I think the hybridization is a really powerful next step on that inclusion ladder as well of enabling people living the other side of the country to go and be involved in the work that's happening somewhere else as well. I think that's a really big part of it is not being geographically bound is another level of inclusion we haven't yet seen. And I think we are soon to realize beyond just the, the pandemic as well. Yeah, and to not exploit those boundaries as well, just because it's coming from a different country, just to add as a caveat, you know, to honor everyone and make sure we offer fair pay based on our location rather than the location of our employees. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting, isn't it? On a, on a broader point of geographical leverage across countries of like, what do you pay? Do you pay them? Do you pay yours? But yeah, I think you've definitely got it right. You pay where you make your revenue because that's what the prices are in your country that you can afford as well. I think that's a really interesting broader point on globalization and how it all fits together. I think that's probably coming together at some point as situation changes, but trying to be ahead of the curve with that is definitely really important as well. But yeah, I've definitely really enjoyed today's episode, Kate. I think we've covered a lot in terms of both leadership, but also in terms of how everyone could champion diversity and inclusion in the workplace and what actually they can do as well. So if you wanted to shout out your, um, your website, katestrong.global. So definitely check Kate out and hopefully you've really enjoyed today's episode, Kate. Thank you so much, Charlie and Ryan. It's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you.